0: Welcome to Creative Audio Production with your host, Pete Buckwald. At Creative Audio Production, we're seeking to create a community of audio engineers wanting to explore brave new frontiers, to boldly put a microphone where no microphone has gone before. And our creative results may vary, but we will not wallow in our failures, for our failures may prove to be the foundation for future sonic glory. Alright, brace yourself. And get ready for this episode of... Creative Audio Production. Alright, well welcome back to the Creative... (laughs) Take two. Welcome back to the Creative Audio Production podcast. And today I've got guest host Chris Bishop with me. Welcome, Chris.
1: Glad to be here.
0: So, you know, I've been listening to the Home Recording Show podcast for some time. And it's funny, when, when I listen to that... I heard it for the first time. I thought, man, that sounds like my friend Chris Bishop. And so, as you hear Chris, if, if you ever heard John Tidy at the home recording show, I would really think personally that Chris kind of sounds like him. He's kind of real opinionated, like, like John Tidy.
1: Is that a good thing? I, I think it's a good thing. I hope in in so.
0: audio, I think you need to be pretty opinionated to sound like you know what you might you might know what you're doing. It's about tact. There we go. So, I, if John Tidy ever needs a stunt double, if he's going to be out for some reason, I personally I think Chris could be. A stand-in,
1: and uh, yeah, <laughs> I could be John for a day.
0: Yeah. So, Chris, let's hear a little bit about you. Uh, where did you grow up? We're here in Denver now, but where, where did you come from originally?
1: Uh, my original history—I was uh, practically born and raised in New Mexico, um, down in the uh, podunk side of the, co- of the country, where there's not a whole lot of need for you know recording and, and sound design and stuff like that. Uh, so that's that's how I ended up coming here to Denver.
0: Oh, cool. Were you in, the, Was that mean Albuquerque, or where did you go? Southeast
1: corner, a little town called Artesia, which okay, is just north cool. of Roswell, for any uh, any alien fanatics nice. out there.
0: Yeah, I have relatives in Roswell. I don't know if I ever told you that. Oh, but,
1: you no, know. actually, I didn't know that.
0: My uncle owns, uh, he's part owner of that alien museum.
1: Oh, really? He's he one of
0: the investors. That, yeah, that that is, That's That's
1: actually really awesome.
0: Yeah, it brought a lot of people to town and helped the commerce there. So, what, what brings you to uh, Denver? What are you up to here?
1: Uh, Well, I came here. I got my Bachelor of Science in Music from a school down there, uh, Eastern New Mexico University. And after getting my BS in music, I realized that there's very little to do with it. So I decided I should probably go into something bigger. And so I actually came to Denver to work on my master's uh, in recording arts. Um, so it was kind of a good little dovetail to go from the music, uh, that I knew into the more technological side of things.
0: Right on. So did you come in as a guitar player or something else? I
1: came here as a clarinet player, actually. I got my BS, uh, in clarinet. Wow. Um, but yeah, of course, since, since coming here, I've been focusing more and more on the recording and I haven't been able to play my clarinet in the past couple of years. Yeah.
0: Well, that's, that's cool. So what, you're getting a master's degree toward what end at this point, or is it still kind of up in the air? Uh,
1: well, my master's is going to be a Master of Science in Recording Arts. It's uh, offered at uh, the downtown campus at UC Denver, um, and I love the program there. It's, it's a very solid program with very competent faculty. Um, and uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess I just really, I really like it, but as far as my focus, I haven't absolutely determined my thesis yet. Um, I've still got probably another year or so to determine that. But I know it's going to be in sound design, uh, probably for video games or for uh, film. Oh, cool. Um, but as far as the exact details, I haven't determined. But sound design is kind of my passion, um, and live sound is my day job. So what my degree ends up being in is still up in the air around sure. those,
0: though. Right on. So after graduation, you think about moving to L.A. or somewhere like that? or? Uh,
1: yes and no. Okay. Um, I. A lot of the field in the industry is in LA, and if I want to make it big, that will probably be end up either going there or New York or uh, maybe somewhere somewhere in the middle, of Chicago. But Denver's pretty much the the middle of this of the ground anyway. Um, I really don't want to move to LA, just because of the culture and the busyness, and I'm I'm a country kid at heart, so it's not really my bag. Um, but if opportunity leads me there, I'll totally go.
0: Sure, sure.
1: Um...
0: You know, a little bit of L.A. has come here, and one of the faculty members you, you work with, like he he's worked mm-hmm. on some big-name films, Dr. David Bondalevich. And absolutely. It's, it's kind of cool that he came here to teach, and he still has contacts over there, and he's able to involve students sometimes on these big-name for-real projects. You oh, know? So absolutely. That's, that's and, awesome.
1: And that's the one thing that I am kind of anticipating on doing instead is because of how technology is, and, uh, I mean, with live audio streaming and the ease of FTP and, you know, internet speeds just maxing out all over the place, it's really easy to do audio post-production um, from your basement, uh, you know, while working with somebody who's half the way, halfway across the country. Right. Um, and I know that that's what uh, David does um, all the time. Um, but, of course, he moved to L.A. to get those initial contacts. Right. Yeah. And it's really all about, you know, getting to know people now. Sure. Um, so that, you know, I could take advantage of something like that. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, it probably has to be beyond a, a Facebook friendship. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Right. So um, you, I noticed Chris is really into the recording studio stuff. You know, when I was a kid, there were, there were people that would hang out in the gym all the time. We call them gym rats. I, th- I think Chris is a good <laughs> candidate for a studio rat, someone that's always wanting to hang out and mess with stuff. So when I told him about this podcast, he was... You know, all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, wanting to get involved because it it it's right up his alley. But you know, I noticed on, on speaking of Facebook, I, I noticed uh, you and some other students uh, went out in somewhere and took out some guns for recording. Can you tell us why did you go out and record
1: guns? Why not record guns?
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: That's the better question. Uh, no, we yeah, it was all for sound effects. Um, uh, there's there's not there's a lot of focus uh, at the school that we go to. Um, in, re- in recording uh, music, but not a whole lot of focus in recording things other than music, like sound effects and dialogue and things like that. Um, and David Bondalevich teaches uh, classes in that, and he's really knowledgeable and has a lot of firsthand experience. Um, but a lot of the, us students really just wanted to make our own initiative um, because whenever you get to this level of you know, unexplored territory, you kind of have to carve your own path. Um, and so we decided, you know what? We've never recorded guns before. We've recorded every instrument on the world. Let's go record something new. Yeah. Um, and it's great for for general purpose libraries. We can contribute it to the school. We can use it in our personal libraries. Um, and there's actually been recent talks about creating a, just a small company of our own and to start creating our own sound libraries and marketing them as the standard sound ideas and, mm-hmm. and other companies of that nature do. Sure. So I'm curious when I've
0: recorded hand claps and snaps, things like that, sometimes even that can be tricky. So I I was wondering when it comes to a gun, how did that go? What kind of mics did you do use and and what kind of problems, you know, how did you go about doing it technically?
1: Problems, all logistical, nothing technical. Um, it's easy. I mean, to be honest, it's really easy plugging in a microphone. Um, but the logistical uh, of you know worrying about the weather, worrying about power situations, um, we had to bring a generator to site just to wow, plug in outboard sure. gear. Um, yeah. And, of course, generators make noise. And so we had to be very cautious about our location and stuff like that. Um, and also planning was the big one. And we're actually hoping to do another one, but we haven't been able to because of location planning. It's just the most difficult thing. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as uh, what we did, um, we actually... Used a slew of mics, um, pretty much everybody everybody brought their whole arsenal, and we used um, uh, dynamic mics that could take high spLs sure. uh, we, we ended up using fifty sevens sure sm fifty sevens close close right at the gun really um, on both sides and at different distances and we just kind of experimented around you, i mean ammo's not the cheapest, so you have to be you have to be kind of um, you have to have quite a bit of forethought going into what you're going to experiment with. Um, but we did that, and then we had um, some shotgun mics downrange, um, both facing away from the gun and towards the gun. Um, and obviously the uh, shooter had to make sure he was good enough to not shoot our microphones, because that would have been less than fortunate. Uh, but the combination of those shotgun mics, because of their directionality, created amazing buys um, as the bullet whizzed by. And then we had... Oh. Yeah, and then we had both um dynamic and condenser mics for the impact. Um which no for that point we used uh well we have at that point we just had wood to shoot at. Um and um uh, but I've like I've got a huge sheet of glass just sitting back at my house that I'm waiting to shoot just <laughs> for that experience. Um but again we haven't been able to plan that. Yeah, but it's yeah. it's a combination of yeah, uh, you know, getting mics close enough without physically blowing out the capsule, sure. which is a huge deal. And they make high SPL. I know uh, DPA makes a lot of high SPL microphones, but they're also not the cheapest. Sure. And they're pretty much a unique application microphone, so you don't just buy it and then use it all the time. Did, um, did you go
0: check specs? Like a fifty-seven. You know, you can only take one hundred and thirty decibels or something like that, and then measure how many decibels the gun was actually doing? Yes, yes, that's exactly what we did. And, well,
1: I say we did that. Um, we did that after the initial shoot or two. Wait, so Only, how,
0: how loud is a gun? Is that 130?
1: It's, I want to say it is. I'm tra- I can't remember off the top of my head. I really can't. Um, but I know that we had to pull those dynamics back quite a bit away. Um, Basically, uh, somebody brought a bunch of SM57s that were really beat up. They still worked. And they were like, you know, if the capsule blows, the capsule blows. Let's just see what happens. Okay. So pretty much we were all new to it. And we just kind of took risks. But, you know, they weren't stupid, stupid risks. Just risks with our microphones. (laughs) And
0: now it's time for... Historical Instances Instances of Recording Studio Studio Weirdness. Where we hear of alleged moments of famous and not-so-famous engineers doing odd things in the studio. All right, well, during this portion of the program, we're going to be talking about historical times when producers, musicians, uh, engineers have done interesting things in the studio uh, in the name of creativity and art and, and talk about the outcomes uh, this section in particular of our program, I'm hoping to tap into some of the older and wiser engineers who have experienced these things or heard uh, the urban studio legend of of things that may have happened in the studios. Uh, but for this week, I'll go ahead and, and share uh, something I've always been intrigued with and that has inspired me in the way I work in the studio. I'd like to talk a little bit about The Beatles uh And specifically the the recording of Sergeant Peppers, and very specifically the song "A Day in a Life," leading up to the recording of the album, The Beatles had been a touring band you know in their early days they'd been in you know nightclubs you know playing in uh Hamburg, playing you know to odd hours in the morning for hours and hours on end, getting their skills together, I'm sure, as musicians and having a good time for, as as young men in, in that town but uh as they got older you know they really got they they started to settle down i think some of them had wives and and families going on and they just got tired of always being on tour and paul notes that they had heard about how elvis for instead of sending going on tour himself he 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 sent his car on tour to kind of be his ambassador and and paul thought well you know, if if Elvis can do that with a car, surely we can. Instead of us going on tour, we can just create in the studio and send the album out to be our ambassador. And this was really unprecedented. You know, bands were expected to be touring and and whatnot, but but the Beatles were established enough that you know they they had they could get away with things. So in 1969, the Beatles started recording. What would be Sergeant Peppers, and it took about 129 days to record the project. A Day in a Life was tracked and um, I have this, I have this. It was pretty early on in that recording process, I know. And as, as they recorded this Day in a Life song, it, it was presented to them by John Lennon, and he had an idea, but it was just a segment of a song. And they were stuck with you know, a partial song, and John said, I'm sorry, Paul said, you know, I have this other little idea of a song, and maybe we can kind of get the two matched up and, and make it, you know, make them one big piece. So, <clears throat> in order to connect the, the, the separate sections of the song, they didn't know how they were going to do it, and they, they left a, a number of empty measures, 20-something number measures, uh, empty. and when they left those empty measures, they did not know how they were going to fill them. George Martin ended up composing uh, what he would call a giant orgasm of sound uh, to fill those empty measures. On each orchestral musician's music stand was a sheet of music paper. and on, on the far, the first measure was the lowest note each string instrument could play, and then a glissando squiggly line all the way up through these 20 measures ending up on one of the highest notes they could play that was somewhere in an E major chord and along this squiggly line every once in a while they would he would sketch a rough, you know, note of where they should be along this glissando. So they they did this and, and to add to their creativity, the band insisted that the orchestra would wear costumes. So the musicians wore costumes in the studio and you can see that in some of the video footages footage online. And the musicians that didn't show up with their own costumes were supplied with artificial noses and some kind of artificial nipples they would put on and and crazy stuff like that. And you you can see some of that online in the the show notes video. The album eventually got released in early June 1967. And the very next day, the album was released, you know, at midnight or whatever, the very next day, Jimi Hendrix opened his concert with Sgt. Pepper. So he heard the song, learned it, and taught his band how to play it, and they opened their concert with Sgt. Pepper. Um, the album appeared on the UK charts two days later and would stay there for 200 weeks. And on the US charts, it stayed there for about 175 weeks. So very successful album. But the, the point I would hope we would come away with is that we need to leave space and time in our productions for this creativity that maybe we don't know what's going to go there, what creative production technique is going to fill that gap and give color and personality to the production. But just make sure to give yourself space, and hopefully through this podcast and through your own education, you're, you're going to figure out ways to 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 fill that gap and to do something interesting there. And you know, in this era, where if it doesn't work out, it's easy enough to delete those bars and to get it back where there's no extra space and maybe you can take off from there and and, and it's a you know you better have given it a try and then see what happens so i hope this is helpful if you have great stories of studio historical weirdness feel free to shoot us a comments on the website all right so this week we're getting into a real creative thing. Uh, actually, Chris and I just got done doing some of the tracking for it, and you'll hear our results. But before we get into the, the meat or the main course, we wanted to kind of give you an appetizer. I've, I've discovered that taking just about any musical sound and throwing it backwards can always be a creative opportunity. So to kind of whet our appetites going into this, this session, let's, let's take, a, take a listen to a couple things backwards. Here's a drum loop. Here's the drum look backwards. Now I did have to uh, kind of mess with that sample to make sure beats two and four were where they were supposed to be, so I had to do a little bit of cutting and
1: dragging and stuff like that. Here we have an acoustic piano.
0: In order to get the reverse piano performance, we wrote down the chords from right to left on a sheet of paper. And then when we went to perform that and record it, we would play from left to right, so that when we, we reversed the sample, it would end up sounding the same way as that first set. From here forward, we'll call that double reverse, meaning we play the records in reverse order, then reverse the sample. Make in when doing this. Make sure to notate any no- notes that need to be held longer. If you want, if the last note is a whole note, then make your first note in your reverse notation that whole note. So here is the double reverse piano. Here's a Rhodes Piano, forward. This is Rhodes Piano, double reversed.
1: Now, this one's interesting. It's an electric guitar with a stereo delay.
0: And here's that electric guitar finger-picked double-reversed technique. Alright, this is the last one of the electric guitar, but this time the chords are strummed with the double reverse technique. Let's take a listen to my melodica, and for kicks and giggles, let's have it with a drum loop. Let's reverse that melodica sample and leave the drum loop in.
1: And then the last thing on our list is a Hammond organ, uh, the Leslie. And here's that backwards.
0: All right. Well, I wasn't a fan of that. It kind of sounded the same forward and backwards to me. Uh, But a friend of mine suggested that the Leslie cabinet is a a good candidate for reverse material. So I'll have to touch base with him and see how he does it. Maybe we'll get some different results next time. Okay, now on to our our main uh, creative technique. You know, I've talked to my audio production students about sympathetic vibrations. And typically when I give that lecture, I'll open up the piano and I'll hold down the sustain pedal and I'll yell. I'll, I'll yell a particular note. Uh, then the the piano will resonate sympathetically. Um, You know what? Let's get that guitar and and show with that. Sure. All right. So here is my guitar. I can play an open D string just so I know where the pitch is. Now here, I'll I'll yell that note into the guitar, and you'll hear it resonate sympathetically. I want a higher note than that. Mm Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: let's do that high
2: mm-hmm.
0: let's try that one here we go ah. I don't know if you can hear that with this dynamic microphone but you can trust us that <laughs> it was resonating sympathetically <laughs> I'm trying to that, I try the high E Ooh. Maybe that was a little better. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I was doing that in in my class, and I started getting to thinking, well, what if instead of just a single note, I used a synthesizer to get that thing going? So hold down the sustain pedal, then play a chord on a synthesizer. And of course, me being a tweak head, next thing I thought was, well, what what if you did that and then you reversed it. Like, would it sound kind of spacey and ethereal? So I ended up experimenting with that. And so that is the gist of today's main course. So let's take a listen to what we came up with. All right, so the samples we took, we began with a very simple input. We Out of the synthesizer speaker, we blasted a single note. And then we built on that. So the second sample was octaves. Then after that, fifths then a major chord and a minor chord, then got into some jazz chords. So you'll hear the samples get a little more and more complex and the results. And um, so here we go. Here's what those samples sounded like. And these are post-production, so these are all cleaned up and reversed and everything. so we heard um some of the ambient piano chris and man i you know when i do production i i, I tend to want a balance of you know things that are percussive and really you know articulating a lot of, of subdivisions in the in the song but i also want some things kind of as an ambient backdrop and i i think this kind of gives you something that that gives you that with, with an acoustic instrument, you know, but yet in a weird modern way, so I think yeah. that's that's why I really think this is worth pursuing. so yeah. what, what were your first reactions to to hearing this?
1: Well, the first thing I thought whenever I heard it was that if I'd never known the process before, um, i mean it it sounds very professional and it sounds very unique, um, but it also sounds like something that most people would try to do inside software. Yeah. Um as far as well, I mean, obviously we reversed it in software, but um as far as the actual recording technique, um uh, it, it sounds like something that somebody would try to do uh, you know, in the box. But right. it's this is an amazing thing because um it's all acoustic all the way. Um yeah. you know, and you record the piano uh like that and you get this very unique sound, um, uh, but it's so so natural and it's so right. so uh what's the word organic sure uh in the way that it sounds
0: right yeah yeah people yeah i I think you're right i think people wouldn't suspect it it's a synthesizer that they're on some level they'd be thinking this is something natural you know acoustic Mm -hmm. technically i I think it's a challenge to do this I, i think with those condenser mics we still hear uh there's a um a radon not radon gas yeah radon gas um mitigation system in the house Hmm. and i think that some of that high frequency we were struggling with and maybe can filter out with some eq is was that and just you know it's a very quiet sound so any noise that goes on it's kind of a challenge to record it because you know it's just so quiet you know absolutely that was hard and we're pushing the preamps and pushing the the speaker trying to get the right balance and even the chord voicings it seemed like some of the chord voicings we're you know, having the harmonics stack up and, and got a, a better sympathetic it's, response. Yeah, it's, it's
1: definitely a process that you can't predict. Um, right. Because you can play a C chord into it, a C major chord, and the result is not going to be a resonated C chord. It's going to be a C chord with who knows however many harmonics mm-hmm. added to it. Uh, which I think is a real good study into just exactly how many harmonics go into these these chords. Right. Um, and you can really, you can take a standard, uh, s- you know, straight synth, um, and you can put it into a song, and then you can play that exact synth part back into a piano. Um, and then, I believe, uh, use that to lay it underneath, and it gives your, your digital synth a more natural, yeah. organic, acoustic sound. Um, and cool. it also adds other harmonics to it to make it more rich.
0: Yeah, that's a great idea. All right, well, let's take a listen to this technique in context with a real production. My friend Vanessa allowed us to, to experiment with her recording of one of the songs she came by and, and recorded here in my studio. I'll put a link in the show notes to Vanessa's website. Make sure to check out her music. She's a fantastic writer and wonderful voice. And I think you'll enjoy this. So let's see what it sounds like if we try to do this technique uh, in context with Vanessa's song. In the computer, in order to get these, here's what we had to do. So when the samples came in, obviously we reversed them, but we also had to trim off that initial synthesizer blast. So it, it you know it's such a quiet sound and you know people probably have the volume turned up. And if we didn't trim off that initial synthesizer blast, it would sound awful and you know you know, ten times as loud it, it it's really loud. So make sure to trim that off, then put a fade at the end of that region and the fade at the beginning of the region so you don't get pops. Uh, and also, during the tracking stage, make sure you you don't check levels on the synthesizer blast. I mean, that's going to have to clip because what you're recording is the, the, the piano strings ringing out. So don't worry if that synthesizer is clipping into the computer because that's going to be cut out in the end anyway. All right, there you have it. That's the reverse sympathetic piano. Hope this is a, a fun, helpful technique for you. And this was done with an upright piano. Um, it was a, a Wurlitzer spinet-style piano. The lid was not the lid, but the the lid was open. But also the bottom uh, panel, came off, the one that's just above the pedals. And the mic, two microphones, were down up against the this the frame down there by the strings on the underside. The microphones were two Rode NT5 small diaphragm condensers, and it was recorded into a a MOTU portable interface into the computer. So I hope this has been helpful for you, and I look forward to seeing your comments. This Sorry, but you do not have any mail. Well, this week our mailbox is empty. So if, if you want to interact with us, please look us up on Facebook at Creative Audio Production. Uh, you can find the website at creative-audio-production.com. And you'll find the show notes there, and you can leave a comment for us to to read and respond to. And we will see you next time on Creative Audio Production. This is Pete Buckwald on behalf of Pete Buckwald and Chris Bishop, signing off for this episode of Creative Audio Production. I guess it's only fitting that I finish the podcast by saying, Yab Dug, which of course is backwards for, Goodbye.